Today we're going to be talking about Jesus as the Christ. Now that word Christ isn't Jesus' last name, and nor is it something you should ever say whenever you stub your toe. Christ actually means the anointed one, and it comes from the Hebrew word Messiah, also meaning one who is anointed in oil. Now anointing was given to someone with a special office, such as a priest or a king. The significance is now that they are commissioned and approved by God for a special task. In the Old Testament, there's several prophecies of the Messiah, and the first one is when God curses the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3:15, which says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's basically going to be a descendant of Eve who defeats Satan and takes care of this problem of sin that Adam and Eve have now left with us. There's over 350 more prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, so it's no wonder that God's people in the first century were clamoring for this Messiah to come. After all, they've been through a lot. Because of sin, the kingdom of Israel was split into two, and in 722, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, and in 586 BC, the Babylonians took the southern kingdom into exile and made them slaves. Alexander the Great took over Jerusalem in 332 BC, and later, the Greeks tore down the altar in the temple and placed a large statue of Zeus in it. Ouch. Finally, in 63 BC, the Romans take over Jerusalem, and well, they're not very friendly either. So after all this oppression, God's people have been crying out for their Savior, their Messiah, that they've been promised by God. They thought the Messiah, the Christ, would overthrow the Gentiles and reestablish the Kingdom of Israel, but God had different plans. Now. Tonight, we're going to see how all of this is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ and how John the Baptist is the forerunner who prepares the way for Jesus. So there you go. A little bit about Christ, and that's enough today for our Historical Minute. Evening, everybody. We are in Matthew uh, 10, verse 40 tonight, and we're going to pick up with uh, just the last part of that last section we talked about. Before we do, though, I, and I just want to apologize, sometimes I get so into teaching that I miss some of the questions that come my way, and so I want to follow up with two. I, I hope the people that asked these are still here tonight. First question was, when a demon is cast out, does it disappear or find another host? Um, the whole area of demonology is, is a subject that Scripture talks a little bit about. And so beyond that, it's, it's, uh, it's beyond my expertise. But from what Scripture does say is, yes, the demons are constantly looking for hosts to inhabit and to dwell in and to disrupt and cause fear and anxiety and rip people away from God and, and faith in Him. And so that's their whole purpose because they hate us. Um, and their purpose is to disrupt God's plans, to, to, again, remember that Satan has a plan and a purpose for our life that is very different from God's. And they're in a, a spiritual battle, a spiritual war, and so um, the evil angels or demons, they, they have purpose, and they go out to seek and destroy. And so, yes, they would um, go find another host. They don't disappear. In fact, at the end times, we're told, when God comes to judge, he will put, throw them into a pit of fire along with the beast and the Antichrist and eventually Satan, and they'll spend their eternity in that pit of fire. And so that their end is not good, and so they're according to scripture, kind of raging in the midst of, of the now, trying to disrupt and cause as many people not to be in heaven as possible. Um, this next question was actually an incredible question. It's, 
I think it's very relevant to our culture today. Um, it, it, it is based on this, uh, some statements that I made um, last week where God says that he needs to be first. And if you don't hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister more than me, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. In other words, I mean, talk about in the morning services, we talk about a heavenly order. God's got to be number one, then spouse, then kids, and then so on and so forth. And when you keep that order, things just go better. They work better in your lives, everything. Uh, there's more security, there's more peace, there's more blessing. But God says, I need to be first. And I gave a couple of examples on that. Um, when people choose, um, well, like addiction, sometimes people will choose addiction over serving God. And, and they won't even pretend to try to overcome the addiction. They just says, we want to do this more. Or other examples, um, you could have, for example, and this is pertinent to this question, I shared that you could have a child that decides they're going to be homosexual, Okay. And then there's a real battle that ensues on how you're going to respond to that. Uh, there was a family in our church that dealt with this very issue, and the dad responded in judgment, and he could barely talk to his daughter. And so he clung to God's truth, but he sacrificed the relationship with his daughter, and, and that is not a healthy response. The, the mother also had a choice to make, and she decided to embrace her daughter and pretend nothing was wrong and, and pretend everything was fine and that there was no sin involved. And so she sacrificed God's truth, and that is not a healthy way forward either. And so the question kind of comes forward in this sense. It says, can you clarify the woman who loved her gay daughter? What would you have counseled her to do? Abandon her kid. And you can feel the hurt in the question. And so that's why I'm glad they're there. I hope they're here tonight. And so I, I want to go back a little bit and just, um, and then you guys can text in to tell me if I need to go back and clarify a little bit more. But I'd like to spend some time on this tonight before we get into the Matthew section. Can we agree, uh, well, we have to agree in the authority of Scripture and in the inerrancy of Scripture and that God's, um, God's Word is His truth. Um, the reason why that's important is because our faith is based on God's Word, and it's, and it's our trust in His Word that ultimately assures us of Jesus, our salvation, uh, His love for us, His care. And when you start picking and choosing in Scripture, the question is, where do you stop? If you say, well, this doesn't count, then why doesn't this other section not count? And, and pretty soon, why do we follow any of it at all? And so that's why they saved throughout the centuries that Christianity is by faith, right? We are saved by faith or by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And so either we accept this or we don't. But if, let's just assume for tonight that we accept this as God's truth to us. Then is there any question for you guys, and this is where you would text in, um, that I need to go back and explain why homosexuality is a sin? There are six places in Scripture, Romans 1 being the chief amongst them. If you guys want me to explain that, I can go into that real quick. Um, but we're going to assume then that, that homosexuality is a sin. And if you have questions, you could absolutely go back to Romans 1. It shares why, why, why it's a sin. It shares how in the, in the rebellion against God it transpired, how it was um, kind of originated, why people pursued it. It was a rebellion against God in every possible way. And so we have a culture today that just doesn't pay attention to Scripture in this regard. They say that sin is no longer sin. Uh, they, don't, they don't say it from Scripture's perspective. No, no reputable uh, historian or, or biblical scholar would say that Scripture justifies homosexuality. You can find some hacks on the, on the internet, but you can find hacks on the internet for everything, right? But, but there's no reputable scholar that would suggest that. Uh, the, the most I've heard, and Mike and I heard it in a, um, a debate one time, is that a fresh new wind is blown in and, and God has changed up his word to something different, although uh, no proof of that fresh new wind has, has been exhibited just that they feel like there is one. 
But scripture says very clearly that, that it is an abomination to the Lord, that God hates it, that it is sinful in every way. Um, it, what's interesting too in our culture that is the conversation about homosexuality has changed too. They used to try to say that it's just born that way, but they're not saying that anymore. Um, they're saying that it's choice and it's to include the transgender stuff and it's to include the bisexuality and it's to include so many of the LGBTYQ and whatever else the, the letters that Mike knows are, but uh, it's to include all those different forums. And so they're saying that it's just a choice now. Our culture has separated themselves from God, walked far enough away from Scripture today where they don't even have to pretend that, that Scripture matters, and so they just say now that it's a choice. Okay, so assuming that it's a sin, assuming that this daughter is pursuing sin, how do you respond to that? I think this is a real important question for us. I gave two examples on how to respond to it, and they were both wrong, right? One sacrifices the relationship, one sacrifices the truth. And so I'll try to put this in perspective as a parent because we live in this society that gives us false assumption that if, if you don't agree with me, I have to separate myself from you. Think Republicans and Democrats, right? If you don't agree with my political views, we can't be friends. In fact, I'm going to hate you and smear your name on Facebook, right? Uh, it, we, I heard a governor say, if you're a, a Donald Trump supporter, don't come to my state. Uh, and I thought, well, that's kind of crazy because somebody voted for him. I mean, and so... You get this political rhetoric, and you even in our personal conversations with people, how many of you guys love talking politics with people you disagree with? Nobody. In fact, aren't you not supposed to talk about politics or religion, right? Those are the two big things. They separate people. And so we live in the society where if we have disagreements on issues that are core to us, meaningful to us, we can't stand the disagreement. And we almost try to force agreement in those areas. How much more um, core, then, would be the decision to become homosexual and to change your uh, reference in terms of sexuality, change your reference in terms of who you are, change your reference in terms of the way God made you, right? I mean, it's a choice to do so, but what could be more core? And so in society, we have the same thing in terms of homosexuality. People say either accept this or you don't accept me, but that's a false choice. I'll see if I can explain it. Remember when your kids were little? Uh, and if you don't have kids, imagine kids that are little. Um, and they would be, be uh, talking smack to you, mom and dad. And that's like a no-no, right? It's disrespect. It's wrong. You don't do this. It, it teaches all sorts of bad things to allow that to continue. And so you would say, no, don't do that, right? And if they, they didn't listen to you or might, maybe even right away, you would discipline them. You'd put them in their room. Maybe you'd spank them, whatever the, whatever the consequence was, to teach them, again, right from wrong. Now, did you throw the kid out in the street for doing that? No. You simply discipline them, showing them right from wrong. You clung to the truth, but loved the child. Uh, in Scripture, it says, love the sinner, hate the sin. And so, as we talk about this particular situation, the way the mom should respond, the way the dad should respond, is loving and accepting their child as unique and special in God's sight, but not approving of the sin. Not, not approving of this lifestyle choice. If you need a, another sin to kind of make this make sense, think of if she was an alcoholic, this daughter, okay? Would you never talk to her again because she's an alcoholic? No, you, you would love her and pray that she would turn from that, that, that way of living, right? From that addiction. Um, would you pretend that alcoholism wasn't an issue? Pretend it wasn't wrong? No, you wouldn't do that either because you'd see it's destroying your daughter, and so if we can take a step back from all the heightened rhetoric on this particular subject, all, all the fake choices that, that may come when you say you have to accept me and my choices and everything about me, then we can just be parents or we can be friends in this regard. We love the sinner. We love the person that's struggling with sin. And by the way, we're all struggling with sin. But you don't approve of their actions. 
You, you cling to the truth. And, and I'll tell you, I, um, this works in a powerful way. Um, I had a buddy that, that chose to go this, this particular route, and he grew up in a Christian home, and we had this conversation one time, and, and at the end of it, he's like, do you want me to live a lie? And I say, you already are, Romans 1. And, and he, we went and looked it up, and he goes, oh. You know? it, but the reality was, at the end of the conversation, I, he sa- I said, you know I still care for you, right? He goes, I know. And, and you know I'm simply just trying to share with you the truth. And he goes, I know. And you know why? He goes, you don't want me to go to hell. Uh, okay, so, but the reality is it didn't destroy the relationship. It simply said that I cared about him. We disagreed about something very core to him. It was hurtful that we disagreed. But he still knew that I care about him. He still knew that I was his friend. And there was still a way forward for that relationship. What's missing in our society is the courage to have that conversation, to love the sinner, to hate the sin. And there's a risk in it, isn't there? Because in our society, if you don't accept my sin, you don't accept me. So if you decide, I'm going to cling to the truth and I'm going to have this hard conversation and they're, no, they're going to know that I love them and they're going to know why I'm sharing it. And they're going to know all these different things, but they may still walk away from me because they don't like the truth that I shared then that is the risk. But I'll, I'll equate it to this. Do you want to be somebody who's waving at somebody as they're going down in the Titanic? Or do you at least want to have warned them not to get on? One's going to resonate, and one's going to stick with them, and one might make a difference in their eternity. The other is loving yourself only and not caring about their eternity. We, we have to be a, a, a community of Christians, of believers that have those tough conversations, that share love, compassion, and truth all at the same time. If we don't learn how to do that, then we're stuck with those false choices. We're stuck with ruining the relationship, right? Or ruining God's, or for, forsaking God's truth. And I can't tell you the number of people, when it comes to this decision, choose their children over God and forsake his truth, and by just kind of necessarily start removing themselves more and more from his truth because they don't want to hear what he has to say or cling to God's truth and say, see it to their kids or to their friends or to the people that are significant to them. How are you going to share Jesus with somebody that you're so condemning that they can't hear anything but your harsh words? And so it's so important that we learn how to do this. And it's about courage. And it's about willing to have the tough conversations. It's remembering truth in love. It's remembering that sin always destroys. And that we don't want them to see them in hell. We want to see them in heaven. And so I, I hope the person that's here, uh, that, that wrote this, um, uh, is here tonight. And if you have further questions, go ahead and follow this up. Here's one. So then does the couple come to, for dinner together? I guess I'm asking for examples on how to love the sinner and hate the sin. Well, that's a great question. Uh, so I would equate it to, again, if sin is sin, equate it to somebody who's an alcoholic. Do you want that person coming to your house drunk? Flaunting their sin before all. It's a hard thing, isn't it? And yet, and I'm going to expand on this a little bit. I don't think it's all as simple as that, but, but it's, it gives you a perspective to say, we'd love for you to come, but we don't want you to flaunt your sin. And isn't that true kind of with the church, too? We want everybody to come. In fact, where would you rather have somebody struggling with homosexuality than in church? 
I mean, seriously, where would you rather have them be on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday night? Is there anywhere that you would rather have them be? Is there anywhere that's going to have God speaking to them to get through to whatever sin that their people are struggling with? And so the question is, if you see somebody holding each other's arms or whatever, and you see some homosexual acts or heterosexual acts, nobody likes PDA in church, right? And if you see that, are you so offended because you're maximizing their sin and minimizing your own that you leave the church? Or do you rejoice that somehow, some way, God is doing some work in that person's life or they wouldn't be here? Yeah, they have some work to do. Yeah, there's some sin, obvious sin in their life that they're struggling with. But we need to show grace as they're walking along that path, not forsaking the truth, not pretending it doesn't exist, not pretending you're okay and I'm okay, but rejoicing in the person, accepting them as God's children, loving on them in Christ, and sharing truth so that they might turn from their sin ultimately and be found in heaven. So the dinner thing, it's a trick. I think I would say no PDA. And, no, and, it, and if you have little kids and you're inviting them over, then maybe no at all, right? Because you don't want to cause your kids to stumble. Or there's an open and honest discussion as they come over. And so as they come over, there's an acknowledgement that what is happening is wrong, but that you love them. And with that open and honest discourse, you, you navigate that way forward. And there can still be a lot of love and a lot of care and a lot of fun that happens at dinner that night. But there's got to be that honesty between you. That for there's never a question on what the truth is. And there's never a question that there's love. I think this is a struggle for the church, mainly because we maximize other people's sin and minimize ourselves, right? Our own sins. But we struggle so much with public sin. If you were a member and publicly sinning, we would come and talk to you and we say, hey, unless you repent, you, you can't come to the table, right? But with the community at large, with the world that comes, the question still is, where would you rather have them be? And it's Kind of a confusing topic, but I think we show grace until we figure it out, right? We don't hide the truth. We share the truth, but we've got to share love. And I hope that, um, does all sin weigh the same? If so, how does one sin differ than another in terms of topic at hand? All sins are the same before God. Uh, There are sins that are public sins that um, when they become public, we have to deal with them in a public way, if that makes sense. So there was an elder at my... um, Oh, Vicarage Church that decided to have an affair and decided to bring uh, his mistress to church. Uh, We didn't know he was having an affair, but when he brought his mistress to church and his wife was sitting there watching this event, we realized that we had to go say something. And so we had to approach him and we had to convict him from his sin. We had him tell him he needed to turn from this sin, right, to stop the affair, to to reconcile with his wife. (laughs) Hopefully she'd still want to reconcile after that, right? And, and to seek God again. We had to ask him to step down from being an elder. We had, to, we had to ask him to refrain from taking communion until he would repent and seek God again. Took a private sin and made it public. Um, when you come in as a homosexual couple, if you're showing a lot of PDA, you're removing any cloud of doubt and it becomes public, in which case you have to deal with it. Again, sharing the truth in love But again, you do so to protect the whole so that people who are um, less mature in their faith don't all of a sudden think that it's okay so that they don't stumble as a result uh, because that's what God's call to us is as a body of Christ. 
You share the truth in love. I'll give you an example. We uh, had some members that wanted to join our church, and they were living together. And so I was like, oh, no. And so we had this conversation with them, and it was a, it was a good conversation. Um, and they kept coming to church for years, two or three years after I had that conversation. And it was like, we love you so much, but the reality is, is that you're rebelling God, and when you become a member, you're saying, I want God to be first in my life, and by obvious, uh, the way you're living your life, that's not quite true yet, and so we encourage you to keep coming and keep experiencing God's truth and, and growing in him, um, but we just ask that you not take communion. Pretty tough words, right? But instead of fleeing like so many do, they, they decided to stay, and three years later, they got married. And they come to church today, and they receive communion, and and they're in a right relationship with God. Praise be to God. Sad that it took three years, but who cares how long it takes eventually that the guy gets them, right? And so you share the truth and love when it becomes public. Everybody's got private sins, right? There's all sorts of stuff that you guys are struggling with, that I'm struggling with, that we, we don't broadcast to the world. But once it becomes known, a public sin, you have to deal with it publicly, differently. And so while all sins are the same, all sins uh, condemn us before God, there is that reality. There's also another distinction that I'll make in sins. Um, the Catholic Church calls it venial and mortal sins. Venial sins I would equate with uh, speeding or, um, I don't know, uh, telling a white lie or something like that. Um, still sin, still wrong, never an excuse for doing something wrong. But you do those things, and it's, uh, Augusta said, or he said, it's like cutting off the end of your pinky, right? And if you don't treat that, eventually the blood will flow out. It'll start affecting things. You'll get gangrene probably in your arm, eventually die, right? If, you, if it goes untreated, it gets infected and all those different things. But it's a long process. It, it, the direct line between speeding and losing your, your salvation is a, is a long trek, right? It takes a while. There's some other sins, like having an affair, where you've grown up your whole life knowing that it's wrong. It's called adultery. It's one of the top ten. And to get yourself to a point where you think that, that adultery, that affair is okay, you have to go through a lot of justifications and excuses and, and hardening of your heart to get to the point to pursue it. And so when you actually pursue an affair, you've done a whole lot of work already that is destroying your relationship with God, hardening yourself against his truth. And so Augustus would say that 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 kills you very quickly. That if unless you turn and repent quickly from that, you can be lost forever. And so there are kinds of sins that destroy quickly and some just take a long time. Eventually, you know, the speeding turns into reckless driving, which turns into a further disregard for the law and eventually that can kill you too. But, but there's some sins that kill you a little bit quicker. And so those would be um, two things that kind of work through as you, as you think about sin. But all of it's uh, not good before God. All of it's why we need Jesus, and, and all of it's why we, we rejoice that Jesus died for us. Are Christians supposed to judge non-Christian sins? Uh, no, no. Uh, but when they come into our house, nor are we to refrain from speaking the truth. Um, while I love Uncle John uh, so much, I don't want him coming drunk and scaring my kids at my house. And so if he comes into my house drunk, I will go up to Uncle John and I'll say, John, I need you to go home until you can sober up. You're putting my kids in danger. You're, you're modeling a lifestyle that's not okay for them. I don't want them to think that it's okay. And so come back when you're, you're in a different place, right? Um, 
So when they come into our house, in the similar way that we would say to members, if you're disregarding God's law and sinning, you're, you're harming yourself, you're destroying yourself before God, you're, you're, you're putting a, an obstacle between you and growing in faith, we would also do so more gently, right, but, but with the world at large. I, I came across this, and this actually pertains to something we're going to be talking about, but it, I thought it was really well written. Um, and so I'll just read it, and then when we get to that point, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up for context. It says, Jesus was not looking for amazement or admiration in response to his miracles, but for repentance. That was the first note he struck in his preaching, and it remained a constant. People will never advance spiritually unless they take that first step of turning away from the evil that they have done. I, I think that's such a powerful line. They will never take the first step of turning away from evil, or I'm sorry, advance spiritually unless they have t- taken that first step of turning away from the evil they have done. And the reason is whenever you have an evil, a known evil in your life that you won't turn from, you're making it an idol. You're making it something that's more important than God. And that's going to stunt your growth, right? It's going to stunt your, 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 your growing relationship with Christ. It's going to be a hindrance all the days of your life. And so, I don't know, it, it's, it's a work in progress as we deal with public sins in our world today that are okayed by everybody else in our community, in our society. Um, but I guess I just want to emphasize two things. We have to share truth and we have to share love. For example, a homosexual couple, if we don't share truth and love, we're saying we can't minister to that whole community. That doesn't seem good. That seems counterproductive to sharing Jesus with everybody, doesn't it? And if we don't share truth, then we don't give them anything ever to grow in faith. And so we've got to figure out a way to do both. Hope I explained. I don't see any more questions, so at least that's something for you guys to munch on tonight. It's such an important topic, no matter the sin, okay, in our culture today. But when it comes to homosexuality, I think it's just a a relevant one, and and we deal with it all the time. All right, chapter 10, verse 40. Okay, so, so far in Matthew, he's, he's made the case for Jesus, and he says, hey, if Jesus is the way, and he is the way, and I've shared all these reasons why he's the way, we need to go out into the world, and we need to share Jesus with everybody else, and as we go out and share Jesus with everybody else, I don't want you to be surprised, but there's going to be some people who don't want to hear Jesus' word, who don't want to hear his truth, who don't want to repent, who will get mad as a result, and as a result, you'll face persecution, Jesus then goes on in verse 34, Do not think I have come to bring peace to this earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the person's enemies will be those of his own household. For whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Part of God's call to us as, as Christian believers is to share truth and love. I, I can't tell you the epidemic that we have in not doing that, regardless of the sin. We try to avoid hard conversations. We, we, we sit there on the, and wave at them in the Titanic. We know they're destroying their lives, but we don't want to complicate the here and now. We've got to figure out a way to do this thing that we've just been talking about for 20 minutes or whatever it is, sharing truth and love. But then he goes on and he gives us this. If you go through all that, if you endure to the end, he says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. A cup of cold water was... um, it was a given. It, hospitality was just different back then. You cared for people that came into your town. You put them up in your place. It was an expectation that you did this even for strangers. Giving somebody a cup of water was the bare minimum. It was so much of an expectation that if you didn't do it, it was, called, it was considered an insult. So he's just saying, doing something that you're supposed to do for a little kid who is back then more probably of an insignificant nature, right? They were just kids. They didn't matter yet, whatever. Even God sees that. Even God understands, he knows, and he blesses and he rewards for every faithful act that you do. And if you do it because of Christ, it's because you're trying to lead people toward the kingdom of heaven, and you will not lose your reward. And so after all this kind of stuff of, you'll face persecution, keep on enduring, keep on fighting, I'm with you, I got you, you know, I'm with you in all this, we'll get you through it. He also speaks then, and also I'll give you reward. Because everything that you do that follows me, I will bless you in heaven as a result. He goes on then in chapter 11, he says, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their city. So they're out going and doing this, this mission trip to all the cities in Israel, and he's going out too to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about uh, the deeds of uh, the Christ and sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's a crazy thing when you consider John the Baptist and all that he did in paving the way for Christ that he would ask this question. And there's two theories that have kind of gone hand in hand throughout the the centuries, I guess. The one that was really popular in the early church and in the Reformation days was this idea that John asked not for his sake, but for his disciples' sake. I mean, they were still following him. They were still clinging to him. Jesus was the way. He was the truth. He was life. He was the Messiah. He was the one that was going to share heaven with them. Follow him, you know. And they were caught up, his disciples, on, well, you know, he's not fasting like we were supposed to fast. And, and, and he's hanging out with some really kind of sketchy people, you know, the tax collectors and everybody. And, and, and he's not quite as rigid as we are. And he is preaching repentance, but it's kind of a loosey-goosey thing, you know. I mean, it's different than us. I mean, we're, we're kind of hardcore people. And they were saying, could he possibly be the one? And so John the Baptist in prison, knowing that his fate was, was somewhat sealed and, and trying to save those that were following him, sent his disciples to ask Jesus this very question. The other theory that goes along with this is that because of those same reasons, John was confused. He preached that the Messiah was to come and judgment would ensue. And yet, Jesus is going around healing people and casting out demons and talking to people and hanging out with them and teaching them about God's word. There was no judgment involved. There was no taking over Israel. There was no threat to Rome. There was none of this kingdom stuff that he had been anticipating. And so some think that John, in the midst of prison, in the midst of the hardships you go through in prison, especially um, him, that he was kind of a depressing kind of situation. And he got more and more down and started wondering and started doubting. He was human like us, and we go through times of doubt. And when he heard all these things and it didn't match up with him saving right away, right? Hopefully saving him in time to get him out of prison, right? And and instituting this new kingdom, maybe even he himself had doubts. 
But out of the case, Jesus responds by saying, tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This did not exactly answer John's question, nor if it was his disciples' question. These were the things that they had seen him doing. They didn't understand why he was doing these and not something else. But they were also prophecies of the Messiah found in Isaiah. And the hope was that as Jesus shared these words, it would resonate something with John or his disciples, saying he was fulfilling the mission just different than they anticipated. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Partly, you can't just leave this unanswered. You can't not follow up on this. Your, your emissary, your, your person that kicked off your ministry, your forerunner, just questioned, are you the Messiah? He couldn't just let it down. It looked like they were having a disagreement of some sort. And so he follows up, and Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning him. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. In other words, a vacillating figure that kind of blew here and there and didn't hold to the truth. What did, you, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. We know from John the Baptist's history that he wore camel's hair and that he ate bugs. He was kind of an outdoorsy man, right, uh, to the extreme. So he says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet. Now, there had been a lot of prophets in Israel's past, but there hadn't been one for a long time. And just like today, it takes a lot of us to get off our seats to go do anything. But a prophet who was speaking God's word and calling Israel to repent, that they would go out to see. What then did you go out to see? He says, a prophet, yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. This is found in Malachi 3.1. If you're in the early service today, you heard that Malachi is the last book of the, of the Old Testament. And he makes two prophecies here. One's in 3.1, and I'll just read the whole thing and, and th that he gives here. And then there's also one in 5, in 5 verse 5. The one in 3.1 goes, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Again, referencing judgment. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring an offering in the righteousness to the Lord. Or again in Malachi 4.5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, does anybody find that interesting that the last book of the Old Testament prophesies as to the forerunner of Christ? He speaks exactly to John the Baptist, and both of those prophecies are referenced here by Jesus in reference to John the Baptist. He goes on and says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, for he had the privilege of introducing me to the world. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, for he knows the forgiveness of Christ. He knows the intangible ways, the way to heaven. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. It's kind of a confusing passage, but most of the commentators seem to indicate it just means that the church will suffer violence in response to this truth. 
He just got done a whole section talking about persecution. We just got done talking even before that about a hard truth that if we shared on the street corners, we wouldn't win any, any favors, right? If we would be condemned by society, we'd be condemned by the world we, as kind of narrow-minded or whatever, but it is God's truth. Christ's message has never been a popular one. He says, the reason the world hates me is because I tell the world that what it does is evil. I, nobody likes being told they're wrong. And so you have to understand going and sharing Jesus is life to people. It is heaven. It is eternity for folk. It is exactly what God's called us to do because we want everybody there. But it is not his message that will be received by everybody. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. That was the prophecy from uh, Malachi 4 5. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played a flute for you, and you did not dance, and we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Because he was very, he was kind of in the austerity movement, right? He ate bugs. He dressed very frugally. He, he was, food had no mastery over him. People had no mastery for him. He was just about teaching the truth, and he was very ascetic in his lifestyle. And so people looked at that and said, he's crazy. He must have a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, even with tax collectors, right? And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus did come, and he hung out with some of the, the less desirable people, and he didn't turn away a beer, I guess, when it was given to him. And he, he ate food, and, and they said, how could he possibly be a prophet? Look at the way he behaves. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And you think this is crazy that people wouldn't do that. I, I, we once had a member um, leave our church because I wasn't more involved in children's ministry. It was really important that the pastor was involved in children's ministry. And they were really adamant about it. And they said, well, if, if you're not going to do it, we're going to leave. And I, I said, I'm sorry about that. You know, and, and so they went and joined a church where the pastors had absolutely nothing to do with children's ministry. Did you see the discontinuity in that? Right? It, people do the craziest things. And if you share with them a message that they don't want to hear... They can find ways to explain it away, even when uh, the rationale is opposite. Then he began to denounce, to say, oh, I can't, I can't go into this section. Okay, so we'll, we'll begin next week with uh, chapter 11, verse 20. I, th thanks for um, allowing me to answer that question. I, I hope it was helpful, the response I gave today. It's, it, we have to learn in the church to do both the love and, and the truth. Um, and when, as we figure it out, we will watch people's lives change and we'll see them uh, embrace Jesus in ways that we never had before. And so go with that encouragement and with this prayer. God, we love you so much. Life is hard. You are good. Um, Father, there are so many people in our life that are struggling with you right now. They either have been caught up into sin or they've, they've just gone a different way. Anyway, they found themselves a little bit distanced from you right now. And our prayer today, more than anything, is that you would somehow get a hold of them. If you can use us, Lord, and, and use conversations that we have to bring them to you, Lord, we pray for those opportunities. We pray for those words. And Lord, we love them desperately, but we pray that somehow even life helps and aids a hand in, in helping them refine their way back to you. Refining their way back to your love, to your care, to your power, to your truth to the peace that you have when we're in your care, to the forgiveness that is always theirs because of Jesus. And then, Father, we pray that you strengthen us because life is hard and we get caught up in stuff too. And we just pray that you would give us mastery over the different sins that we've kind of gotten caught up in, that you'd help us give strength to overcome those different areas. 
And Lord, lest we start beating ourselves up too much, we just pray that you remind us and give us this lasting sense that we're your kids. And no matter our blunders, you forgive us. And no matter our sins, you've loved us from the very beginning. And you're rooting for us. And you're encouraging us. And you're strengthening us. And you're reminding us that you got us and our situations. May we rest in that strength and in that love tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.